0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
1: It's such an honor to present this next award.
0: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to...
2: And the Oscar
0: goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now.
3: You like me.
0: I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake.
4: Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
0: I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here today scattered to the winds. Uh, in her usual place, we have our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Uh, hello, Katie. And uh, somewhere in Los Angeles, we have our chief critic, Richard Lawson.
1: Hello. I feel like I live here now,
0: I don't. You've become bicoastal without even really Mm -hmm. trying to.
1: At long last. Yeah.
0: Um, Well, so Richard, you're in town for the Vanity Fair New Establishment Summit, um, which is is your first time going, right?
1: Yeah, I haven't been before, um, mostly because I didn't really have a reason to. But this year I'm doing a panel about YouTubers because I just had a feature in the magazine uh, all about YouTubers run. So um, it seemed like perfect synergy to have me come out and moderate a panel.
0: Will it make you feel more or less uh, decrepit than when you went to VidCon for your YouTube story?
1: Oh God! I hope and nothing could make me feel more <laughs> decrepit than that. So I'm hoping, anyway.
0: Um, so yeah, you'll be able to watch Richard. Uh, well, actually, by the time people hear this, your uh, YouTube panel will have already happened, so the video will be out there. Um, you can. There's like, going to be a live stream of all the summit events, and then in the back half of this episode, you're actually going to be able to listen to one of the panels from the summit, where it's going to be uh, co-producer and writer Lena Waithe, director Malina Matsukis uh, of Queen and Slim, which is one of the fall movies that we kind of are all anticipating around here. They're going to be on stage talking about the movie with Lester Holt. So we'll listen to that interview in the back half of this episode. Um, but first, we just have all the usual like bits and pieces of Oscar news to catch up on. And uh, right before we started recording, we realized that the Gotham Award nominations are coming on Thursday. So as you listen to this, you may already know about those nominees. Um, Richard, you, you've been to the Gotham's a couple of times. Do you want to give the brief rundown on what those awards are going to mean when we see them?
1: I actually have not been to the Gotham, but 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 Mm. the rundown (laughs) essentially is that it's a lot of like New York um, critics, I think mostly who kind of, they vote on the nominees and then like a sort of, I think glitzier coterie of people votes on the winners. Um, And every year it's the, it's the really the first, you know, test balloon for the awards, for awards season. Um. Uh, every year, so um, I, you know, I was speaking with some people who are on those nominating committees, and they have a lot of films to watch. And I think one of the more interesting categories is they have a breakthrough director category. Mm-hmm. So that, so that means you want they want if you're on the nominating committees, you want to watch a lot of first time features and things like that. And I don't know; it feels like it's been a pretty good year for that. Um, but yeah, I'll be curious because again, they they do tend to set the tone uh, early.
0: Yeah, you get a good sense of what some critics' favorites are going to be. Maybe like what the underdogs yeah. are rooting for. Like last year, first Reform. Got a Best First Feature nomination, and that kind of led to Ethan Hawke getting Best Actor Buzz, and then Paul Schrader getting a Screenplay nomination. The favorite popped up there if Beale Street could talk, which I think Beale Street last year, like people really thought of it as an underdog, and it kept popping up there. And then Regina King went and won the Oscar. So even if, like, the Gothams are going to pick more obscure and more indie movies than the Oscars will eventually, uh, it's a great place to, I mean, at least your New York Film Critics Circle predictions can really <laughs> shape up based on the Gotham nominees. <laughs>
1: Right, exactly. Another thing to keep in mind is that, I won't name names, but some critics are on the nomination committee for, for Gotham's in the New York Film Critics Circle and then also the National Society of Film Critics. So mm-hmm. certain, certain critical voices are kind of on the down low, like very prevalent throughout the early phases of awards season.
0: This is the like the Freemasons of awards season. Who <laughs> I'm, the I'm making a
1: triangle sign with my hand right now. You can't see <laughs> it. The, I'm making the Illuminati sign.
0: Uh, well, I won't make any predictions because it will sound foolish by the time we get here. But next week, hopefully, we can talk about uh, maybe which of these indie darlings we'll be um, pulling for. Um, speaking of probably not indie darlings and probably not eligible for a Gotham nomination, uh, Richard, you saw Bombshell, which we talked about a little bit last week, uh, but yeah. kind of made its New York debut. Uh, you, you filled us in on the people who came out to see Bombshell on a <laughs> Sunday night. It sounded like a hot ticket.
1: Yeah, so it was at a, at the Crosby Hotel down in Soho slash Nolita, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, and it was like an early screening for, I would say, friends and family slash a few press people. But it was mostly like Drew Barrymore was there because I think one of her co-stars from um, her Netflix show, uh, Santa Clarita Diet, was is in the movie. She was talking to Lawrence O'Donnell uh Peggy Noonan, former Reagan speechwriter and the writer of the speech, uh, the George Bush speech, Read My Lips, No New Taxes, was there. Two seats away was um, SNL wunderkind weirdo darling Julio Torres. Uh, (laughs) Lucas Hedges was there. Um, It was a really uh, – Cindy Adams. Like, it was a funny New York-y mix of people. Um, And, you know, Jay Roach and and the the film's writer, I believe his name is Charles Randolph, uh, came out before the movie screened to say, you know, thank you for coming. Coming. Please stay for the Q and A and reception afterward. Um, and he said, you know, just looking at who's in this room, I think it's going to be an interesting time or something like that. So I think they just wanted a a, a room full of, I don't know, I guess bold names to to kind of kick off the conversation. And it it feels like it did. I mean, it's a very conversational movie. They even had a hashtag hashtag bombshell conversation that we're supposed to use. I don't think anyone's going to use that. Oh, interesting.
0: Um, (laughs) So it's all about like having like a a conversation circle afterwards.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, there's a part of me that, or a, a rather large part of me that thinks that's all a bit cynical in that like ultimately when we're talking about a pervasive culture of sexual harassment and potentially worse at an institution like Fox news, to say nothing of the other horrible things that Fox News routinely does, it, it strikes me as a bit of a strange tone to take – to kind of frame it as just this kind of dishy media gossip. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I don't know that the movie does that exactly. There is a little bit of that in there. But that kind of event and, – and it was fun. I'm, you know, I'm grateful for the invite, of course. But like – It did feel a bit like, well, this is actually about something a bit more serious than, um, you know, the sort of glitterati of Manhattan on a Sunday night, uh, you know, buzzing about some movie.
0: Well, and like how, you know, I don't think we want to spoil the movie too much, but like the way that it's kind of threading the needle of being about, like, women being empowered in the face of harassment, which is a very real thing, and it's something that Gretchen Carlson has talked a lot about since she left Fox News, Megyn Kelly maybe a little bit so. Like, is it trying to be, like, a pure, like, women can do anything story, and also all this weird stuff about Santa being white happened, and we don't want to talk about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what it's like. <laughs> okay. I mean, um... It's not, I mean, it's a bit more nuanced than that. And I think that, you know, there had been some concern that Jay Roach, who is, you know, directed a lot of, when he's gone serious, I mean, he did Austin Powers and stuff, but when he's done more serious political movies, they've been these HBO, you know, Saturday night docudrama kind of things. Um, And there was a little concern that Bombshell might be, feel a bit too small for the big screen. It doesn't. There's a lot of style in the movie. It's got a smart script. It feels cinematic and it feels weighty. I mean, it takes itself seriously. But it really, you know, in zeroing in on Megyn Kelly's decision to come forward, on Gretchen Carlson's decision to sue Roger Ailes, and then this kind of composite character played by Margot Robbie, it it doesn't quite zoom out enough to show you what Gretchen Carlson was saying on air. They do a little bit of the Santa was white thing for Megyn Kelly, but they don't talk at all about her, you know, her haranguing about the new Black Panther Party and various other, I, I mean, racist things that she said and did. And they kind of only joke about in the form of a character played by Kate McKinnon, the other terrible things that Fox News uh, is doing to the political and cultural discourse in our country. I understand that they didn't want to make a huge survey of the problem of Fox News. They really wanted to dial in on this this specific story. But I I left wanting a little bit more basically condemnation of of what that institution and particularly Roger Ailes uh, does and did. Mm -hmm. That said... Charlie Theron as Megan Kelly is outstanding. They do a very subtle bit of of kind of prosthetics. I believe it's the guy from the um, who did Darkest Hour, the it Winston is, Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and it's so subtle but like so, especially when she's at a certain like kind of three-quarter profile, you're like is that Megan Kelly? And Theron gets the voice really well. It's not like an outright impersonation, but it's just the kind of intimation of Megan Kelly-ness that like I found um it's kind of beguiling.
0: Hmm. I mean, do you feel like it comes down to, I I feel like I've seen this a few times since that Los Angeles premiere, that like, if people are given the choice to vote for Judy Garland versus Megyn Kelly, they're going to go for Judy Garland, talking about Renee Zellweger, or do you think the Megyn Kelly performance is compelling in other ways to kind of overcome that?
1: Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. My my inclination right now would be to say they're going to vote for Judy Garland, um, but... You know, at this kind of Q&A afterward, someone asked Charlize about the challenges, and she was like, this is one of the hardest things, like, one of the hardest people I've ever had to play it. And someone was like, but you played a serial killer in, in Monster when she played Ivy <laughs> Warners. And she, and she said this was harder. Interesting. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I think that people will respect that level of commitment to the character. You know, like, actors a lot of times talk about, like, it's not what I believe, it's what the character believes, and you just have to play that belief. Um, and... I think that that's what she does here, and she does it really well.
0: Uh, well, Bombshell is still not opening until December, which is another really interesting factor to consider as we continue talking about all these movies. But it does seem like it has a really ironclad narrative. Like last week, after the LA screening, uh, Nicole Kidman and Margaret Robbie and Charlize Theron were all out doing press. Like They're going to be about like talking about women and believing women and like dancing around it. Hopefully, maybe Megyn Kelly will tweet a little bit less. But it does seem to be interesting that this kind of come and establish its place, and then I guess the next question is, like, when reviews start coming in, are people going to be a little bit harder on the Fox News stuff, and then are people actually going to see it, which is, I can't figure out for myself.
1: Yeah, because I don't know that anyone watched the Roger Ailes thing that was on Showtime. I know. we talked about that a couple weeks ago. So, I I mean, this is juicy, and it is – you know, that 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 cool teaser trailer where it's just that it's an interesting, you know, bit of the score uh, with a kind of chorus of female voices, whether in the elevator like that's that's just like a scene from the movie. Yeah. Um, and there is that kind of exciting hook to it. But it's also it's granular. Again, it's a New York media story. I know it shouldn't be because this is, a, you know, a representative of a much, 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 much more pervasive problem in, in the world. But the way it's framed in a, until the very end, it does just feel like this behind the scenes thing uh from you know in one building in one on one block of Manhattan,
0: yeah, so it'll be if we had Mike here he would tell us about how New York is gonna like the movie but l a is gonna, gonna <laughs> or, Joanna, you can you can weigh in on the uh, the West coast response as it makes its way
3: around California
5: <laughs> yeah, this feels like a really this just feels like the post all over again no um I don't know um. I think there's the presence of Margot Robbie who has this un, like unmistakable... Well, I don't know. I guess she was in a, an awards movie last year that no one watched. But um, I was just thinking that I, I feel like when the, the trailer dropped there was a lot of like, yeah, it's queen. And I don't know if like Margot Robbie, who is not playing a real character. I wonder if that will allow people to feel easier to just be like, yes, this is a story about female empowerment and not have to feel like they have to grapple with the Megan Kelly, Gretchen Carlson of it all. Um, I don't know. That's very interesting. easy. Yeah.
1: No, that's a good point, Joanna. And, and I think that there are a pair of scenes toward the end of the film that would support that. I think, um, Though one is not necessarily about empowerment, it's about uh speaking like just, just speaking one's truth about what happened to them, you know? Right. And it's a really, really powerful scene and Margaret Robbie is incredible in it. And it you know, that's kind of the emotional core of the movie. Because one thing that the movie does that kind of annoys me is that they keep showing Gretchen Carlson and Megan Kelly's kids as if to like humanize them. And and I'm I'm not against them being humanized, but like it's just a kind of a cheap ploy in a way um whereas with the robbie character like they kind of locate the her really kind of the core of her emotional reality i guess and 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 that works quite well in terms of i guess we'll talk about supporting actress later on this episode but like robbie is a strong contender for that movie but i wonder almost kind of with like brad pitt and ad astra if it's just strong enough to get her across the line for once upon a time in hollywood
0: yeah and I think that's a decent theory that's been floating around because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is one of those movies that feels stronger the longer it sits around, um, which doesn't always happen. But like you said, we'll get more into detail on that.
1: I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that?
0: Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at
1: large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote.
0: Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina...
1: The fake wedding Real housewife star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company.
0: And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone.
1: Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning Hulebrity queries.
0: Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, and Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, *Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number.
0: Before we do our Supporting Actress Deep Dive, as uh, Richard just teased, I wanted to just check in on a couple of the new releases. Like, right now, we have just a lot of Oscar contenders that are in theaters, so Box Office Mojo always becomes kind of an interesting place to just poke around and see at what's succeeding. Like, obviously, Joker is still doing insanely well. Um, but then, over the weekend, both The Lighthouse and Jojo Rabbit, which are t- such wildly different movies, it's funny to talk about them in the same sentence. Um, they both opened really well in um, eight theaters for The Lighthouse and five for Jojo Rabbit, so it's a really small sample size. Um, but I think with Jojo in particular, like it had an A cinema score. It did kind of exactly what it did at Toronto. Th- that, it feels like a pretty strong sign that that movie, we're not talking about it as much as we were a month ago, but it, it feels like it's really hanging in there. Right.
5: Right. It didn't just like uh, open and nobody saw it. And we were like, whoops, guess that was just like a festival fluke. Like this is definitely yeah. people are going to see it. So, uh, yeah, it, it will, it will remain in the conversation for sure. Um, I don't want to, like, hop past what we're currently talking about, but sh- should we add how
0: much money Parasite is making on Sophie's Yeah, no, that's definitely part of it. This? Like, I mean, Parasite you know? expanded from, like, two theaters to 33, um, and also continues to just have, like, a bananas per theater average. I believe it was still the 11th
5: highest grossing film in the country on yeah. only 33 screens.
0: And yeah. that...
5: Is a nutso statistic. So. It
0: uh, it made almost as much as It Chapter 2 did over the weekend, which, you know, that movie's been out forever. But, oh, also over the weekend, Hustlers crossed $100 million. Mm-hmm. Yay! What a wonderful I've, stat to I've, see.
5: Imagine imagine me, like, throwing a bunch of $1 bills in the air. In <laughs> At <celebration>. usher. <laughs> yes.
1: Particularly $100 million $1 bills. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that um, you know the, the money stuff is, is obviously a good indicator, but also Katie, you mentioned Jojo Rabbit's Cinema Score. Yeah. I feel like that's a really, really strong indicator for that movie going forward. Um, my hunch is that that movie opened in kind of big metropolitan areas, like in the few theaters it was in, right? Yeah, I must have. So if it's if it's winning over those cynics, you know, like I I I would imagine it'll play. You know, well all over the place. Um, so that that I think is a really good sign um, for that movie um, and, and also, like you said, a direct reflection of its audience prize from Toronto.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were talking about the Gothams and how it's a preview of the critics' prizes because we're going to start getting, like, you get the Hollywood Film Awards, we're going to get the AFI Fest, like, there's going to be a lot of, like, buzz for people in a lot of different places, but what's coming is Gotham Awards and then a bunch of critics' prizes in early December. So for something like Jojo Rabbit or something that we're not necessarily expecting to be a critical darling but could still be in the awards, Awards race, like it's not going to start getting big buzz until the Golden Globe nominations, really on that kind Mm -hmm. of national stage. So if it continues just making money and being popular in that way, like that's building up a kind of a strong, I mean, base of support. Feels weird because it's just people going to see it, but it's it's gaining strength in some way that I think could serve it later on.
1: We need to start seeing memes. When once the memes start popping up, then, <laughs> yeah. then it's it's permeated culture. I mean, because I mean, you remember all the green book memes. Oh, <laughs> I lo-
0: love a green book. I mean, meme. I don't know. Well, like I mean, I've seen I you tweeting like, in a fake I- Italian accent, Richard. I know. I know. <laughs> I know it's out there. I feel like there was some like Vigo eating memes. That yeah, happened, definitely right? folding a, a whole a whole pizza. <laughs>
1: Don't blame me for David Sims's crimes, Katie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's what the purpose of this podcast is. Um, well, speaking of memes, Joanna, you were you were floating a theory that Joker, despite its ever presence and the fact that those stairs in the Bronx are being invaded by influencers in Joker suits, which is the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. <laughs> um, that you you feel like it's fading uh, despite its continued popularity. It kind of does feel that way. Just like we
5: we were so worried. About what it would do to society. And maybe we won't, maybe we have yet to see what it will do to society, but like. And then it just was a movie, you know? (laughs) And then, like any movie in 2019, we're on to the next thing now. There's a Star Wars trailer. There's a whatever else. And, you know, Disney Plus is You know, content, content, content is coming. And there's no room for something like this to really, really marinate in a way that either feels uh, healthy or damaging, you know? So, I don't know. That's just part of my cynical, we don't talk about anything for any extended period of time. We pre-discuss things. You know, people who saw it at Venice on we had a discussion since then till it opened about what it would do what it would do what it would do what it would do and then it opened and then a couple weeks later it's sort of like yeah there's still some memes but you know are we really really talking about the Joker anymore
1: yeah I mean I think that's fair I I think also that Joker has kind of been absorbed by this larger comic book movie cabal you know like we've seen all this pushback against lauded filmmakers like coppola and scorsese and whoever else who have spoken out recently about superhero movies um and 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 you see how just how big that that particular part of the fan base is and 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 how sort of sturdy they are and i feel like joker is just kind of more sort of further buttressing of that um you know it's funny like i was i'm in la and i went to a screening here for um the new terminator movie and you know it was a similar kind of screening crowd to to what you get in New York but like there was just this extra sort of I think a lot of like nerdy kind of nerd culture sites are maybe more based out here than they are in new york so there were a lot more of those people in the star wars trailer who just dropped so everyone in the room was watching that and i was just thinking about like just how big this this culture really is and i just think that joker now that it's n- not only a massive financial success but also you know won the top prize at a big fancy european film festival like if it has any impact it's just kind of i think reaffirming that larger narrative
0: Do you want to talk about nerd culture and watching the Star Wars trailer before your screening of Terminator Dark Fate?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can. Yeah, I mean, it was just like, I was funny. I tweeted something um, when I got back to my hotel from that screening. It was like, so the Star Wars trailer dropped while we were all waiting for Terminator Dark Fate to start. So there was just this kind of like chorus almost of, of the theme playing at random times from people's phones throughout this IMAX theater before the movie started. And I was just thinking about it. It was like, okay, so they're, I'm hearing this music from this new latest big Disney Lucasfilm film <laughs> at a screening at, that's basically part of Universal Studios before a Paramount movie. And I was like, Hollywood is alive and well. You know? <laughs> like, it was just like a very like, the studios were like very present. And then someone on Twitter reminded me that Terminator Dark Fate is actually being released. By Disney through Fox uh, everywhere about the US. Oh, so, there you go. Yeah.
5: It was 11 well wow. around the world. Um, of course. Um, yeah, it's funny. Uh, my my favorite thing about, like, two conglomerates colliding about the Star Wars trailer is that, that they aired it once again during uh, a football game, which, like, and then, of course, they released it almost immediately online, so you didn't really have to watch a football game, but I know a lot of Star Wars nerds who were watching that football game just so that they could get the trailer, because they did the, like, tease for the trailer and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, you know, I don't know, just companies working together to pat each other's mm-hmm. backs and boost each other's numbers, and this is how these i mean really really they released it because a lot of people are already watching football and so they're like ah we'll get a big audience but i don't know this is the last trailer of the skywalker saga
0: until they reboot the skywalker saga (laughs) in a few years the whole like this is the final trailer for like the whole buzz thing i get it but like it just feels, it's so funny that like two weeks before Star Wars series premieres on Disney
1: Plus, they were like,
0: it's over, the end of the saga. Yeah.
1: I tweeted something to that effect. I, I, you know, I was like, I can't believe we've just watched the last ever trailer for a Star Wars movie. <laughs> and all these people were like, wow, Disney really fooled you. There's no way this is the last one. And I was like, no, I know there are literally like nine in development as we speak. Like, I'm just joking. <laughs>
5: Um, well, well th- uh, yes, in development, but there's nothing in production, right? And so we are actually—I mean, not to well actually, Richard. But um, like, a, that's a funny tweet. But B, uh, we are a long way off from another Star Wars movie. There's nothing in production, like yeah, that's Weiss, true. You know, Weiss and Betty are in production. Ryan Johnson's not in production. Kevin Feige's not in production. So we have these like Star Wars TV shows, but no Star Wars for a while. Now we are all of the age where we have lived decades between Star Wars, so we're not that fussed about it. But it's been Little, you know it's it's a it's a new fallow period for the star wars films and we'll see well, what happens also, next it,
1: it's interesting because if solo had done well i think we'd be talking about something we'd be talking about this very differently yeah, i think there would be more in production absolutely. you know yeah. and i think another interesting thing that i've been kind of eyeing due to a recent onset obsession with like disney blogs or disney videos on youtube <laughs> like <laughs> about disney the theme parks is that galaxy's edge the big splashy new world that they opened at disneyland first and then disney world later um, is not doing very well
5: i mean mm. i think it's doing i think it's doing fine it's just underperforming from where they expected yeah. they thought it was going to be nutso and it's like doing very well so um yeah. But know. very well is terrible for <laughs> Disney. <hate. laughs> yeah, yeah. It's underperforming where they estimated. That is true. Um and I don't know how much of that they blame on like I mean, I think basically the attitude of make Star Wars rare again, which was like my tagline out of the solo screening, just mm-hmm. like let, let us just breathe. I think a lot of people are thrilled about this Rise trailer. They're really excited to see this movie because, you know, it's been at least, uh, you know, over a year since we've seen a Star Wars movie. Like, let's just all, you know... Slow down and, and parcel it out. It's not like Marvel; it can't it can't bear the weight of multiple movies a year. I think um, so. Yeah, that's, I think yeah.
1: also the the Galaxy's Edge thing that the, you know, which is the the land at, at the, the theme parks, might be suffering from that old Yogi Berra problem. You know, of nobody goes there anymore; it's too crowded. Mm-hmm. I, I, I I think that people are just like, oh, that's going to be a zoo. I am not going to go. And also, one of the big uh, rides isn't open yet. But anyway, I am kind of keeping an eye on that in case you want some. You know, <laughs> six months from now, some article about the the fate of Galaxy's Edge. I, I, I'm your guy.
0: <laughs> well. I mean, four years ago when we really first started doing this podcast, which is crazy to think about, The Force Awakens was coming. I think it's fair to say, at least I believe that if that movie had come out a little bit earlier, if the bus had started, it would have gotten a best picture nomination. It seemed very possible at the time. It doesn't really feel that way for this. I think for lots of different reasons and you know, the Return of the King was a big anomaly. Um, do you feel like we should be taking it more seriously? Should like at least this be part of Adam Driver's narrative as he goes for like, you know, his rain soaked Oscar win for marriage story? <laughs>
5: I mean it's definitely part as as we we're just talking about the Margo Robbie like momentum I think any kind of momentum you can have from multiple projects uh Laura Dern is in the same boat um will help your your narrative right um I I think that it will depend how it's received and like if if the if the narrative around this movie is like it healed the star wars fandom and everyone loved it and like there's some amazing way to pay homage to carrie fisher and you know we all feel like really really good about the franchise from start to finish sure why not yeah give it the return of the king treatment you know why not yeah
1: yeah, I think the thing for me about that is that if you th- if you think back to the early 2000s um when we were just we were all babies so we don't really remember it but um <laughs> like that was unprecedented there had never at least kind of in my lifetime at that point there had never been something on that scale produced with that level of ambition that level of technology you know it was really like a thing unto itself and and kind of took hollywood by storm and i really think you know led to what we're the kind of world we're living in now whereas you know 20 years later eh, it's not it's not quite as extraordinary that they pulled off this trilogy feat you know like i think that um I think that's maybe part of the reason why Star Wars isn't getting awards attention the way that the the Lord of the Rings franchise did. And also you have the fact that, like, Lord of the Rings, for better or worse, like, it's a little bit more literary in, I think... A lot of people's estimation, uh, you know, it's written by this kind of Oxbridge guy in the, you know, early 20th century. And it, it has this, you know, invented languages and it's, very, you know, it, it, classical illusions. Not that Star Wars doesn't have those things, but um, I think it's just Lord of the Rings is, occupies a different place in a particular cultural imagination than Star Wars does.
0: Well, at the very least, we always have uh, the ability to talk about Adam Driver and even more. Um, and, you know, the rest of the cast, too. Like, you know, Oscar Isaac, it's weird that, like, he kind of broke out as being in Coen Brothers. This Coen Brothers movie has kind of been, like, sucked up by Star Wars. But I don't know. I, I feel like the, the its place is in the Oscar narrative somewhere, but probably, like, as a sideline player more than, you know, what The Force Awakens was four years ago. Yeah. But get some some technical Oscars for those puppets, those horses running on the side of a spaceship, which I don't understand (laughs) how that works. Did you guys have any favorite parts of the trailer? Just any, like, pure nerd stuff that uh, you were excited about?
5: Well, I mean, like, I always love when we're slightly complicit in some uh, funky marketing obfuscation. So I'll just say that our our beautiful Vanity Fair spread that we had, this beautiful Annie Leibovitz uh, portrait of those uh, horses, was definitely not on a spaceship. (laughs) So I think we had a fake background uh, in for those horses in our in our magazine spread, which is fine. Um, one detail that I really loved is there was a 1981. The, you see this throne right with the like. Uh, dramatic spike curve spike things coming out the side of it and that's actually based off of a design from a 1981 sketch that Ralph McQuarrie did for um, Palpatine's throne room so doing something like that bringing back a 1981 sketch for a throne room is the kind of like let's knit the whole thing together attitude um, that I think could be really fun for this film that's pretty exciting
1: Something I was hoping for a glimpse of, which I don't believe we got in the trailer, is Carrie Russell's character. I
5: she's, think so. She, she's there. She's in the background yeah. of a shot, but she's there. Yeah. Well, because, there. you
1: know, this is a J.J. J. Abrams project. I assume she plays a character who is going to go join the Resistance, but decides to go to the New Order because a boy she likes from high school isn't going to the New Order, right? And, and he signed
5: know. her New Order yearbook, right. and she's yeah. like, yes. Yeah, exactly, yeah.
1: And, and then <laughs> halfway through the film, she cuts her hair yeah and then (laughs) is the
0: boy she likes donald gleason because i also missed him
5: (laughs)
1: right yeah
0: he's there is he there in the
5: background yeah he's he's deep in the background he's in like a little he's he's with um billy lord's character um they're sort of got their arms around each other and you can't tell if it's like in uh you know we're wounded or we're in love either way i'm here for that whoa yeah wow could be twist who knows um. Yeah, uh, Carrie's there. She's still got her helmet on, so we don't know anything more than we knew from our Vanity Fair photos. We haven't seen her helmet off. Hopefully she gets to take her helmet off, and this isn't another Phasma experience. The people who are actually missing from the trailer that I'm uh, excited to see, uh, Richard E. Grant is missing from the trailer, and we haven't seen my boy Hux, Donald Gleason. So, um, you know, what is he up to, that scamp? Um, but yeah, mostly it's mostly it's super space friends on a super space adventure. Uh, Everybody's until, in the Millennium
0: Falcon. Good time. Until
5: one super space friend's ex-boyfriend shows up and it's raining and they have a fight. That's what <laughs> on, I saw. That's face. the trailer I saw.
1: <laughs> Amy Joe Johnson better be in this movie. That's
5: <laughs> As the Pink Ranger slash <laughs> yeah. sure, Felicity character? Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, like, we know that Greg Unberg's going to be in there somewhere. He, he has a, he actually has a Star Wars character. I think it's called, I think his character is Snaps Wexley. I think what? that's the name of his Star wow. Wars character. See, yep. this is.
1: That's my favorite drag race <laughs> <contesting currently.
5: laughs> um, Yeah.
0: All right, let's close out uh, before we get to the Queen Slim interview, as we said, to talk about supporting actress, which I don't think has a Star Wars connection, um, although Carrie Russell, you Laura never know. <laughs> uh, oh, I think, you know what, there you, well, <laughs> my memory of Star Wars is fuzzy. She's not in this one, right? No, she's not in on this okay. one. Okay. <laughs> so I was saying to someone, like, Star Wars is the thing that I greatly enjoy when I watch it, and then I forget everything about it. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, Star Wars. It's, like, a shiny object. Um, okay, so, yeah, so maybe we'll start with Laura Durham. We had the interview that you did with her last week, Joanna from the Mill Valley Film Festival, Um Looking at um the film experience, our friend Athena Rogers' site, he has as his top three, uh, Margot Robbie and Bombshell, Jennifer Lopez and Hustlers, and Laura Dern in Marriage Story, all of whose hair looks spectacular in the stills from their respective films, so that's something. <laughs> um, That feels like a solid top three for this, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it feels that way. I mean, I, I just increasingly feel like Laura Dern is pulling away as the real frontrunner at this point. Um, yeah. Just because, like, there's so much love for Marriage Story, and it hasn't even come out yet you know, um, and she has Little Women, and she has, you know, the kind of residual Big Little Eyes stuff, and even residual Star Wars stuff, like, she just, you know, I was speaking with someone close to the industry uh, a while back, and she was just saying, this is just kind of Laura Dern's year, and that's kind of the sentiment that I think a lot of people are sharing, so, um, I, I don't know, I think she's uh, she's my favorite to win it right now. And she's Even an Academy sort of-
0: governor. Like a couple years yeah, ago when right, they were exactly. having a new Academy president election, like she was in the running. The, the extent right. to which she's connected in this ha- crowd is hard to uh, overestimate.
5: And the, all the work that she did with the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you read our profile of her uh, that we did this year, you know, like a part of it is set at the Academy Museum. Like, yeah. you know, this is this is uh, her town. Um, when we were at the height of Hustlers <laughs> Mania, I was like, J-Lo, maybe, but I was uh, talking to someone about the idea of doing, like, a – because J-Lo is doing uh, – she's doing plenty. We talk about playing the game and campaigning and how you can best campaign, right? And J-Lo is, is doing that in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, she's doing the Super Bowl, which you, Katie Rich, pointed out on Twitter. Uh, she's doing the Super Bowl halftime show, which will air right before voting closes. Like three days right? before. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So, like, that's, that's a great move, but – that's sort of, like, this broad kind of – camp, like, that's not targeted campaigning, whereas I think what Laura Dern is doing, like, with the, you know, conversation that I got to have with her in front of a bunch of Academy voters uh, the other weekend um, with the Inside the Actor Studios thing, and she's doing – like, a lot of her stuff that she's doing is more targeted Uh, campaigning. Whereas maybe JLo is doing like sort of wide populist campaigning. And if you want the win, probably the targeted campaigning is what you need to do. Everyone more than deserves it, you know. But I think Dern, because of that connection because she's like you know hollywood royalty but in a way that doesn't feel like she does not deserve to
0: be at the table yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah. you know really really gives her that momentum. yeah I you think. could have said she had a career because of nepotism 30 years ago when she started and then she's continued to have a fascinating career from there like she has proved right. herself many times yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
5: So yeah, um, I, I I, mean, I don't want to call it like a done, done deal, but it feels like a done deal. Because like, we, we were talking about bombshell is this sort of like surprise. Uh, by the time this this podcast posts, some little women's social media uh, reactions will be out there, right? And the surprise lurking in that is possibly Laura Dern in a supporting role you know what I mean so like that's what's waiting to to kind of throw things I don't know
1: the mistake Jennifer Lopez is making is not following that old old Hollywood adage you try for the Oscar you hope for the People's Choice Award you don't try for the People's Choice Award and hope for the Oscar (laughs) She's getting it backwards.
0: I mean, she's going to – she could definitely still win a Golden Globe. If only she'd had an original song in Hustlers. They really um, missed their shot on that one. Um, Richard, as we were talking about Bombshell, um, do you feel like like Margot Robbie's shot is for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood more than Bombshell,
1: right? Well, I think it just comes down to what people are going to sympathize with um, and what people are going to want to root for. And not just the performance but the larger movie. You know, I'm from my vantage point, I'm like, ah, oh, bombshell, Fox News, Megyn Kelly, Gretchen Carlson, Roger Ailes, no one's going to vote for that. Vice got so many uh, Oscar nominations. Yeah. <laughs> like so many. I would argue, though, that Vice is more critical of Dick Cheney than. Mm. Bombshell is of not of particular actors at Fox News, particular actions by Fox News, but they're not really the the movie. Again, is not a mat like a like a kind of macro criticism of the Fox News sort of ethos, its presence in in society. So I wonder if that will put people off. But again, Robbie has this one particular. I mean, she has a lot of great scenes. She's really good in the movie. They're all all three are great. But she has this one scene in the movie that's so powerful, and yet still when you have another performance riding a surge, you know, I think we've kind of said on the podcast that at this current juncture, once upon a time on Hollywood feels like the, the best picture front runner, maybe a Tarantino win, maybe a screenplay win. Certainly uh, Brad Pitt, possibly like, I just feel like Margot Robbie as a kind of wistful imagination of Sharon Tate, that might carry a bit more uh, favor than this prickly Fox news movie. And yet Margot Robbie is good enough and the movie comes out in December so people will see that remember that they like Margot Robbie and then vote for her for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood
0: yeah yeah I think that's about right Um, you talk about Little Women lurking as a surprise like none of us have seen this yet but we've uh, Joanna you I think have really wisely been eyeing Florence Pugh from the very beginning as a potential breakout because she's playing uh, Amy um, who has as we discussed on our book club episode like she gets this amazing transformation that we feel optimistic that Little Women might do right by I think some of Laura Dern's conversation with you suggested that too right Right.
5: Yeah, she talked about well, she talked about um Marmy specifically, her character. Um, but yeah, this idea of like challenging character types that have been reduced to certain things, like Marmy reduced to this saintly mom figure and Amy reduced to this brat figure, and how Greta is interested in complicating those things, much like she did with Lady Bird. Um, much like I think she probably did with the parts of Mary's story that she helped with. And um, so I just think that uh, yeah, I would I would love to see that for Florence, and people really loved her in m- Midsummer as well. So she's got that extra project, 2019 project momentum. Um, I think I, I I can't remember if I cut this out of my interview with Laura Dern, but I definitely did say something like "Justice for Amy March," and the, ca- and the crowd went mild, like they went, they were <laughs> completely silent, and I was like, "You'll see." Yeah, Little Women uh, hive just hasn't activated yet. <laughs> I might have cut that out because I was like, "That oh, that didn't land." <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: Um, one other contender, or a couple other contenders I wanted to flag. Um, talking about Jojo Rabbit. We haven't talked too much about Scarlett Johansson in the context of this race in a while. I think um, Marriage Story is still by far her biggest showcase, but she is great in Georgia Rabbit. And I do think if that movie continues to build momentum, as we've been talking about, like a double nomination for her, I, I think she's definitely getting nominated for Marriage Story, but I feel like a double is not impossible.
1: Yeah, I think the thing working in Johansson's favor for Jojo Rabbit in particular, yeah, the accent's a bit wobbly, but that's not stopped the Academy before. And also Taika um,
0: Waititi's <laughs> Hitler accent is insane, too, is kind the of the whole, point. The
1: whole the whole movie is a riot of bizarre accents. I mean, it's, you know. Um, but I think that in a movie that is, you know, coy about some things, arch about other things, you know, dealing with very, very tricky optics and very, very dark ideologies and a moment in history Scarlett Johansson's character is the one person until the, maybe the end of the movie who plainly states really the movie's kind of emotional and philosophical political outlook you know yeah. I mean Thomas and Mackenzie's character does too but she but like Scarlett Johansson sort of states the thesis of the the broader theses of the movie you know and I think that that makes her really appealing and um, she's a nice kind of respite from a lot of the sort of you know edgier, pricklier humor that exists elsewhere in the movie.
0: Yeah. No, and I mean, it's just such a... It's like a a loving, you know, nostalgic mother role, the way that it's written. Like, you kind of see her as being bigger than life, the way that maybe her son would. Um, But she really inhabits it really well. It's not some like saintly thing she feels like a real person even if she's kind of you know she's this character who's like resisting the nazis like she's doing kind of larger than life things um i was really taken by it i think i like the movie more than you do in general richard but i feel like i was not the only one who kind of saw her as, as shining through it um and again like she's so good in marriage story that it really makes you thinking it makes you think more broadly about how talented she is and the fact that she's never been nominated at all which is crazy Right. But then again, she just continually gets in her own way
5: whenever she gives an interview. So,
0: yeah, we've yet to see how this how this push will take shape to maybe uh, start steering away from that. If we were
5: just talking about like pure performance and talent, I would agree. But since award season is so much about campaigning and giving interviews and every time Scarlett Johansson gives an interview, it feels like a scandal that I'm just like, that's working against her. But I, I think she's
0: so incredible in Marriage Story. Just, like, incredible. So, yeah. Um, well, speaking of giving interviews or maybe the lack thereof, I'm still really hoping that uh, and Zhao of The Farewell can sneak in for a nomination, even though as far as I know she is in China, where she lives and has not done any press for it at all. Am I crazy?
1: No. I think it could happen. I, I think that that movie needs to... It's getting, I think it's getting re-released or something. It wouldn't I, I surprise write, me. I think they're doing something for that movie where they're like, remember, you know, how like Rocket Man did that like Hollywood Bowl performance? Yeah, like last, uh, like last week. Yeah. And I was like, oh right, that movie wants to win Oscars, you know? Yeah. Like I think that, I think the Farewell will kind of reemerge, not quite as flashy as as, as that because that's a big studio movie, but like I think something for the Farewell will happen.
0: Well, the Farewell, I, I, I'm I'm some box office mojo. It was in 21 screens last week and it made twenty five thousand dollars. It's still out there. There you go. Uh, um, the, the Rocket Man thing, um,
5: and, and I, like, for the record, I did not bring up Rocketman this time, <laughs> um, but the Rocket Man <laughs> thing is interesting because it feels to me like suddenly they're like, um, hey, Elton, <laughs> you're going to have to help with this one. Cause Elton, like Elton and Taryn sang together after the Oscars last year, and it uh, can, or early, I believe earlier this year and it can't, but like when it, I don't know, I just didn't feel like he, uh, Elton wasn't super on the early press train like the the domestic press train didn't really feel that way and that's okay like he didn't make the movie it's about him but he didn't make it um but i feel like this most recent push there was just like a lot of elton and taryn take los angeles stuff on my timeline at least uh recently so uh you know just the old the old elton push yeah Yeah. uh, get you over the top i don't know
1: it also had the feeling of like maybe a little bit paramount being like why did we release that in May? <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> maybe we could have put it out in late October. It's actually not that crowded of a field right now. In the now, Bohemian
0: like, Rhapsody slot, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Damn. Well, also Elton got out there dissing the Lion King music, which is like maybe the best publicity Rocketman's gotten because like no one can resist a feud.
1: Was, and he, did a, <laughs> just he get,
0: did a song for the Lion King. That was the really crazy part.
1: We just have to get Elton on Marvel movies and then... Oh yeah, my then
0: God, yeah. He's, he's just waiting for somebody to ask him. My God. Okay, any other supporting actors, candidates you guys want to get into?
1: Well, my friend and friend of the podcast, Dan Dario, who's the chief television critic over at Variety, uh, he had this prediction when the Downton Abbey movie was about to come out, and then it subsequently did very well at the American box office. Um, I think it's made like $82 million.
0: 88. Box Office Mojo is like my fr- It's made $164 million worldwide. Worldwide. <laughs> my God. Yeah,
1: which is insane. <laughs> Dan was like, "Well, Maggie Smith is just going to win supporting actress. <laughs> like that like that's just going to happen. I don't know if the, i I haven't heard anything else about that since, but like it, you know, as the old McDonald's ads used to say, Hey, it could happen. Uh, <laughs> i I wouldn't I mean, Maggie Smith is beloved that series is beloved. Yes, it is a movie based on a TV show, which would hamper it, I think in the academy's estimation some. Um, I don't know. I feel like she's not we should keep her in the in the mix, certainly.
5: I mean, I obviously have to give a shout out to uh, a woman playing local California legend, Diane Feinstein. Okay, so like, Diane Feinstein, divisive political figure in some people's eyes. Uh, but, you know, Annette Bening playing her in The Report, playing her in a very uh, admirable chapter in her long career. And, um... But not as a saint, you know what I mean? Uh, I think it's a really good performance. You know, we talked about you know prosthetics and playing a real life person stuff like that. Annette Bening manages to like give you Diane Feinstein without not going without going cartoony, uh, in a way that I that I really like. I mean the wig is doing a lot of work for her, but she's also Annette Bening. And uh, you know wouldn't it be interesting to see Annette Bening who's come so close in lead so many times to like get it in supporting finally or something like that? So
0: um, yeah, I mean speaking of Adam know. Driver and his ever presence, like that's the third Adam Driver movie of the fall. But I do think it will like the report is kind of a dense and not necessarily like easy movie to grasp onto, but I think Adam Driver's presence in it might keep it you know, on the top of people's minds. And then Annette Benning could really benefit from that.
5: Yeah. It's dense, but it's also like I, if, if people see it, which they should, I feel like they will feel like they saw something very important. Mm-hmm. I do think it is very important and urgent. And, uh, you know, the way that we thought maybe the post might be a good, uh, you know, commentary about people in our government, uh, or people in our media or, or whatever doing, uh, speaking truth to power in the ways that they can. Um, so I don't know. That that would be interesting. I don't know. Diane is like, uh, with love. I voted for her every single time that I could, and and I actually c- quite like her, but I think, you know, when you have a long career in politics, inevitably there are compromises, so of course she is like a divisive figure even on the left, but uh, you know, I, I think I, I think it would be fascinating to see Annette in there, and I'd love
0: to see it. Well, once again, speaking for the Californians, yeah. this is what they're uh, they're going
5: to be looking
4: for.
0: <laughs> Give the
5: Californians what they want. <laughs> I,
1: I was looking through Gold Derby just now to see if there were any other people I was missing, and it's just funny because not every contributor to Gold Derby like updates regularly, and so you get these like old old predictions from like May or something like that. And I just saw one that was had Anna Paquin from The Irishman list. Oh, and she has like maybe two lines in that movie. So <laughs> let's just pour one out for those. <laughs>
0: that, uh, that hope. The, this had Oscar buzz of uh, supporting interest yeah. campaigns. Thanks. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Okay, so let's now move on to uh, sharing the audio from the Vanity Fair New Establishment Summit uh, of Lena Waithe and Melina Matsukis talking to Lester Holt about Queen and Slim.
3: Well, thank you all for being here. This is, uh, I gotta say, I didn't know much about this movie and I went to a screening with just one other person and I came out of there dying to talk about this movie, and I'm glad I have this opportunity Thank now, because yeah. Uh, yeah. what, a, what a, a tremendous piece of work, very powerful film. Lena, if I could start with you. We heard the character say it's a, a black Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, there's a lot more to this than a Bonnie and Clyde story.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think um, I had the character, Uncle Earl, say that, uh, because as a writer, I'm going to obviously run toward you know what I think people are going to think, and... It actually is, is so not that, but I think when you look at the, the poster, that's what you immediately think, but it, it's really about two black people whose lives are in danger and they decide to save themselves. They refuse to be victims. They refuse to be um, you know another face on a t-shirt or another name that we have to hashtag and, and honor their death. They decide to live um, and so, so yeah, and it really is a story about the world in which we live today and that I really believe that it's, it's open season on black bodies. Um, and for some reason, as if you were wearing a, a police uniform, uh, you sort of have this sort of license to kill black people in their homes unarmed. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not an America that I wanna live in, but it is the America that I currently live in. So as a black artist, it's my job to tell the story that talks about that, but also because I am who I am, I'm going to flip the narrative. So in this one, we're not being killed by cops, but it's the other way around. Yeah, Melina, you
3: get the pit in the, in the stomach the moment you see the, the red lights on mm-hmm. and they get pulled over. You think you know where this is going. Instead, it's the story turned upside down. Mm-hmm. It's the cop mm-hmm. who's left uh, dead after one of these encounters. What's the, what did you want to tell? What story did you want to tell?
4: I wanted it to be rooted in authenticity. Like, I wanted all audiences, regardless of color, to understand how we feel when we see that light behind us. You know, that we know that we might not make it past this, you know, regular traffic occurrence. Um, And I definitely wanted us to come out as victors and not victims, Um, but really create empathy for black people and for you to understand our struggles, our laughs, our celebrations, and really. Yes, like not demonize who these characters were and show them as real people.
3: I'm thinking some people might see this film and struggle with the idea that they're rooting for mm-hmm. these two individuals.
4: Mm-hmm. They should. You know, they're rooting to end racism. They're rooting to, to correct the wrongs in, in this world. They're rooting to uh, create equality in all of our institutions in this world. Like, you know, it seems like a, a simple, I think, backdrop, but yes, you're rooting for what's right.
3: And, and we see individuals in the movie who are rooting for them, that's part of the story. And again, I don't want to give out too much. The queen, as we learn in the movie, has a very hard shell. Mm-hmm. She's carrying a lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. They're very, very different people. But I want to talk about how you portrayed a black love story and what you think has been missing in the way it's been, it's been mm-hmm. treated before. And I'll, I'll put that to both of you.
4: Yeah, I mean, for, for both of us, number one, I think it was important that we represent a black love story, that we have two dark skinned actors. <coughs> Um, on screen, and we show the beauty between black unity um, and black love, and that's not just romantic love. So that was really, I think, important for both of us. Um, We also wanted to show, I think, black masculinity in a way that was unexpected, you know, where Slim can be this kind of vulnerable man that is simple and finds joy and love in the simplicity of life. Lena always says, and you can speak for yourself, that. You know, she starts off as Malcolm X, and he's Martin Luther King, and they learn from each other, and they trade kind of places by the end, and they're able to unite under the shared experience um, and the intimacy of, of this car and the journey.
2: Yeah, and I think what I really wanted to do was to show the humanity that we have. And I know it may seem like an odd thing for you know, a person to show one's humanity, but I do feel that still in this country, when people look at black people, they see things, about them before speaking to them. And it's an interesting fact that people have told you if you're ever being held up, you know, and someone's about to kill you, what do they tell you to do? They tell you to share things with that person about your life. Mm -hmm. You tell them that you have a child. You tell them that you have a husband or a wife. You tell them that, you know, where you went to school so that they can do what? They can feel empathy. And they don't, if if they feel any sense of human connection to you, they may let you live. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what I was ultimately trying to do every time I sit down to write characters. Like, and I think I know, I always say I want to be the you know, writer version of Gordon Parks. And that he did so beautifully is he captured what it was like to be black in America with photographs. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it be one of my favorite photos of little black children looking through a fence and looking at white children playing freely on a, par- on a, on a playground. That is still, in essence, what it feels like to be a black child in America, even though he took that photo many moons ago. We still are from the outside looking in, and there's still, even in Ta-Nehisi new book, book, um, which I'm reading, which is really beautiful, as he writes so eloquently about a carefreeness that our white counterparts will always have that we will always sort of be chasing. Because even in this American soil that we stand on today, I think in a way we still feel like second-class citizens.
3: Was this an easy movie to cast? These are two very <laughs> powerful people and and the chemistry is just amazing.
2: Yeah, well, we, I, we can't take too much credit for Daniel. Daniel kind of cast himself. <laughs> uh, Definitely. But, and, and thank God, uh, he, he read an early draft of the script. I, he and I had dinner. I, I mentioned to him that I was working on this uh, this script, and all I said was, I was like, yes, yeah, you know about black man, black woman, they get pulled over, they end up killing a cop in self-defense, and he was like, I wanna read it. You know, <laughs> And so I sent it to him, and I did tell him, I was like, it's early days, and this and that, he's like, I don't care, I wanna take a look at it. So he read it, and then emailed me, and the subject line was like, I am slim. And I was like, well, I got to have Melina read it first and see if she <laughs> want to direct it. And if she does, you got to talk to her. And he was cool about that. He was like, all right, cool. I'll wait. And, and, uh, and he did. And, and when Melina read it and decided this would be her first film, she went to go sit down with Daniel, I think, out of a kindness to me.
4: I was a little resistant to the idea. <laughs> and it's really a testament, I think, to Daniel's talent. Like I only knew him from Get Out. Right. Um, and the character is Get Out is not at all similar to who Slim is. So I didn't see it. And yes, we went, because of Lena, to what was supposed to be a five-minute coffee and turned into a five-hour-long conversation. Right. Um, And hopefully now a lifelong working relationship. Absolutely. Uh, But I say, like, he's all Paul Robeson. Like, he had to play this role. He has his own experiences with police brutality. Right. And it was really important for him as a human, um, I think, to portray Slim. And he did. He cast himself. He cast himself. And then I gave him the role, and I called Lena, and I was like, I hope you're still into it, because, (laughs) I I offered him the role, or he took it, rather. Perfect. Um, And then, you know, since we had Daniel, (laughs) and we have this tremendous talent, and both Lena and I felt it was really important to use this opportunity to give the platform to break a new black actress, right? And so now we have to, exactly. And it was a challenge because we had this tremendous actor with experience right. and, and all this backing and, and all of that. And they hold the whole film. You know, There's not many scenes without the two of them together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for a new person to come in and be able to hold her own was quite challenging and kudos to Carmen Cuba, our, our casting director. Casting director. Um, because Jody she, was in
2: the first round of She was in the first batch.
4: And when I think both of us saw that video, of her first audition, we knew we found our queen. Right. Um, And we still continued the search, I think, after that.
2: Yeah, but the truth (laughs) is, it was like, no one could hold a candle. Right. We were just like, okay. And so then it really ultimately came down to, obviously, a, a chemistry read between the two of them. And I think we both said a prayer. Uh, when she walked into really the room really didn't have Daniel, another option. There was no other option. <laughs> so we like, this better work. Cause you know, cause the interesting thing, which I, I think I can share is there's no B story. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want a sympathetic cop who, uh, you know, cared for them, but had to bring them to justice. There's no Harvey Keitel in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, Meaning and they no have
4: shade. to hold their own yeah, for I'm the entire film. I love These two police. people.
2: But yeah, it's like they're, they're, and so that really meant like, like we need somebody really strong and you know, Jodi walked in and, and, and it was immediate, like even Daniel's reaction to her presence. I mean, you see her on the screen in front of you. It's like, it's, it's a no brainer. And to us, it was really exciting to not just break a new black actress, but to break, to break a brown skinned actress, mm. which is also a big thing for us. We were like, she must be brown skinned. Right. Well,
3: yeah. I want to talk about the, the statement uh, that this film makes, not the film itself, but you guys and this and this powerful cast Mm -hmm. Uh, does this represent a new stage a new era in black filmmaking in terms of how hollywood views it
2: i think so i the 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 analogy i use is the year midnight cowboy beat true grit Mm -hmm. at the oscars where it was this thing of what is this Like who somebody made a joke that the person, I think it was Elizabeth Taylor who read the who read the uh the the winner, they were like, I don't even think she knew who what Midnight Cowboy was. And but what it to me what Midnight Cowboy represented um was a new wave in actors, directors, and storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think to me, even for black cinema, you know, that we love and we look up to and we appreciate, I just even for me personally, I haven't seen anyone doing something like this, you know, and that is so we don't pull any punches, we don't miss words. I de- we, we demanded when people were, and we were very blessed. People really were excited about this movie and they wanted to be a part of it because it was my script and it was myself, Melina and Daniel Kaluuya and these places were like, what do you want? <laughs> and I, when I said, we want Final Cut. Mm-hmm. We want to sh- shoot film. We wanted to shoot on film and we wanted to shoot, we wanted to shoot it and release it in the same year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then we wanted like 20 mil. And so, and we got that. <laughs> and you got
3: yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: If they okay. wanted it, and also too with the we test screening. We wanted to main And control. it was important with the test screenings because I think those are barbaric and I think we should do away with them. Um, but I said, if we do do a test screening, I remember being on the phone, the two of us with Donna, I said, if we do a test screening, there'll be one of them. What comes out of it will not affect the, crea- with the creative and the film, and it should be 100% black audience. And she agreed to that, and that's what we did.
3: Mm-hmm. Are these hard films to? I mean, the, the initial pitch was it hard?
2: There was no pitch. They pitched us. No. Um, that in itself is. Yeah, I spoke I mean, to. We've... I spoke to Fox Searchlight. We spoke to Lionsgate. We spoke to obviously Universal. H uh, twenty four was interesting. I mean, what we. What happened was. We because I, I always say I accidentally packaged my own movie. It was definitely by accident. All I knew was I just wanted Melina to do it. But also then it's like I didn't realize like my friend who is my collaborator is someone who is really the most one of the most sought after directors in this in this town. She just is. Everybody's sending her stuff, she passes on everything because you know <laughs> Melina's very particular. Daniel Kaluuya, one of our most, you know, popular faces, this most recognizable faces, most popular actors we have, was like, I want to be in it. So it was three the hard way. And my script is something that I wanted to make sure what's undeniable, because also I said to them, I said, I'm not taking any notes on the script right. from an exec. The only person I take notes from would be Melina. And if Daniel had thoughts or whatever, I would go with those. And if Jody was like, yo, what about we say like this? I was down for that. But I'm not taking notes from any person that doesn't look like me about a story that is about us. And I think that's why when we've had these screenings, people have come out. Well, one of the biggest compliments anyone can give us, M. Night Shyamalan, a couple of people have mm-hmm. said, it reminded them of the first time they saw Boys in the Hood, which is a huge compliment to, I think, us, because Boys in the Hood is such a seminal piece of cinema. Mm-hmm for black audiences or just audiences all around, but I think white, black audiences have said to us, this hits different, this feels different. And I said, yes, I think that's because we are not catering to a white audience. Mm-hmm. And also this film has not been put through a white gaze in any way, form at all. So what's happening is, is this is our version of what most white movies are. Mm-hmm. This is what Judy will be like. This is what, you know, the Mr. Rogers movie, the, the, <laughs> the, the movie about Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver get divorced. This is our... <laughs> Film about our lives, you know what I'm saying? It's like we. But, have but to stick is it going to gonna draw a broad audience? Time. Here's the deal: we have to stick to those movies all the time. There's language and behavior that is very foreign to us. Well, this is our movie and our language. And the cool thing about it is, I think black folks are not only going to show up, but I think other artists are going to show up because they're going to wonder what's all that fuss about. Why are they making all that noise over there? And I think that's what we do: as rebels and as artists, we make noise to the point where you have no choice but to step back and take notice.
3: Yeah, Milleen, a lot of, you know, when we look at success stories and uh, African-Americans in conversation, always, who opened the doors? Mm-hmm. You know, somebody had to open the door to walk sure. through. Mm-hmm. Who opened the door for both of your success in this film?
4: Not literally, but as an influencer, Julie Dash. Julie, Julie Dash, is for me, is the queen of black female cinema. Like, to see that woman as a director that was able to create these pieces of work that were so authentic to a culture and a place and it was so interesting um, and maintain her own creative control of those projects um, was really important for me to see and witness coming up. Obviously Spike Lee in a very similar tone using the political backdrop of the environment in which he's living um, to make criticisms, to create protest art, to create things that are moving the culture forward. Um, People like that for me are the two I think and Hype Williams, I always go back to Hype yeah. Williams. You know, I grew up an MTV baby and seeing the way this, this black man could photograph black bodies and women and men um, in incredible ways and, and could change the way we see the ugly and see the beauty, I think, in our experience, that was really influential um, on my life.
2: Yeah, Lena? I think films like Love Jones were very influential for me. Just that, and also obviously me being from Chicago where the film takes place, there was a language in that movie that felt very authentic that obviously still stands to this day. If you ask most black folks, what's your favorite love story? Like, (laughs) Love Jones is gonna fall into that somewhere, shape or form. An independent movie called Just Another Girl in the IRT. It was a phenomenal movie that, it was a small movie that a lot of people didn't see, but I remember again, seeing it and seeing myself in a way that almost felt alarming. Um, uh, you know, those two films particularly I think really had just a huge impact and then also I'll say Menace to Society as well um, and that even though Yes, Boys in the Hood was such a phenomenal film, I think what the Hughes brothers did was they sort of took that and sort of put it on acid and said, okay, now let's be really bold and like, I mean, they killed their protagonist. You know, they're like, Kane is not Trey and (laughs) Trey is not Kane. Like, they're like, the decisions he makes in his life is going to get him killed and there was something about that seeing that movie and being like, oh man, like they just really told the truth in that film and I thought that was so powerful so i think films like that that really spoke in a language that i could understand and obviously we're not catering to an audience that anything other than myself, I think made those films feel so iconic and so special. And I think those are the stories that I always wanted to tell where I was speaking in our language. Mm-hmm. Even if other people couldn't stand it by, couldn't understand it, they could see it and still feel something. And I think those are the kind of movies I really kind of respond to. I want to talk about
3: um, what, what comes with this, the cachet, a, a, a newfound founder, respect. I mean, what, what, how does life change when you have, you know, your first time out of the, out of the gate, you, you hit one like this?
4: I have no idea. (laughs) I guess, you know, I'm taking it day by day and seeing how it changes, but also remaining humble, you know, and making sure I'm connected to the things that really matter in life. And that's why we created this film. Like we created this film to create change in the culture. Um, And that's what really matters, you know, to honor all the black and brown bodies who've lost their life to police brutality, to honor black love and use that as, you know, use this as a tool to promote black unity. You know, I always say like, that is our greatest weapon against the oppression, our oppression and against the assault on black people. So staying focused, I think, on what truly matters and not my personal gains.
2: Right, yeah, I I mean, absolutely. I think when I sat down to write it in my brain, it wasn't like, oh, I hope people say this about it. You know, I think the same thing happened with Thanksgiving when we came together to do that episode. I don't, we, there was no way for us to know that it would take on the kind of like life that it t- t- took on. Um, but I think that's usually the best thing when you just, and then you just make an art and then people, I always say, we have no control over how people receive our art. Mm-hmm. All we have control over is how we make it and the love that we pour into it. And my hope is that you know black filmmakers see this and realize that oh we can do that now right oh that's a thing we have control. you know not unlike you know that happened with the actual bonnie and clyde you know i think warren Beatty set out to say i want to do something new and different and i want cinema to to be gritty and and real and grounded and everything i mean it's like you can pinpoint it. everything after that movie things shifted you know directors then started to change their behavior and how they went about filmmaking and i i hope that and maybe not just for black cinema, but particularly for black cinema, is that other black filmmakers look at it and aren't afraid to be bold, aren't afraid to ask for final cut, aren't afraid to say, I'm going to tell this in my language and not care if other people some things go over their head. Because I think that is what true equality looks like in this industry, is that I mean, we don't have to like, explain things to, to the broader audience, but when we can just tell a story that cuts right to the soul and people really feel it.
3: I think this film is going to to be very personal for a lot of African Americans because some of the themes um, that it strikes. But are you also concerned it may be controversial on
2: any level? I welcome that. Mm -hmm. I welcome it.
4: I think in order to create change, you have to do something that's provocative, that's making people think, and you can't just continue the status quo. You know, there's there's no change in that. So it needs to make people uncomfortable. Because
3: ultimately we're seeing two individuals celebrated largely as a hero, and in this case... it's the cop who's dead, and Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you think that's going to provoke...
2: For sure. You know, I hope the president tweets about it, you know? (laughs) I think you're not doing your job well as an artist, if, if this particular president isn't upset with you. Um, uh, so I, I, I look forward to that tweet. Um, but, but I also look forward to, you know, because the truth is when people actually go see the film, they see that I, nothing I write is black and white. Everything I write is very gray. Um, the only thing that's black I write about is us as people and how honest I can make us. Uh, but to me, it's like, I don't want to hear the argument about, oh, this is an attack on police officers. It's like, well, there's an attack on us mm-hmm. right now. And, you know, I, I'm, it, it, it makes me very weary every time I have to read about these stories about black people being killed, you know, mm-hmm. and it is traumatizing. I am traumatized right, by it, even though these people necessarily aren't in my family. I don't know. I know them. I know them. I know what they look like. I know, you know how they walk through the world. And for their lives just to be taken senselessly mm-hmm. is something I can't ignore. And so I welcome whatever debate someone wants to have with me. But yes, on this celluloid, it's a different story.
3: I got about forty-five seconds. How, how do you two work? How do you work together?
4: Uh, we work through trust, yeah. you know, like she does her lane, we respect each other, we respect each other's talents and strengths and, and depend on each other in that way for support, right. um, and we challenge each other, you know, we're both very opinionated, Yep. yep. <laughs> um, but I think because we're not scared to be honest with each other and we also trust each other's tastes, like you get the best of, of both of our talents when Ooh. we come together.
2: Yeah, and I think what's cool about us is that, you know, a lot of people sometimes mistakenly refer to me as a director or ask what I'm going to direct, and I say, I am not a director. Mm-hmm. That is not what I do. And I do the same. I'm a writer, you know, I'm a producer. And sometimes I'm an actress, you know. For hire. <laughs> but um, but Melina is such a phenomenal director. Why would I have a lesser movie to feed my own ego? Mm-hmm. I want to do it? Oh yeah, this is a movie written by Lena, directed by Lena, edited by Lena, <laughs> all these things. It's like, what do I get out of that? I'd rather give you a phenomenal film than to give myself, you know, a crown. You know what I mean? It's like, I'd rather work with my sister who is so gifted, so gifted. You can tell from looking at the trailer. Like, people keep saying, so the trailer is so amazing. The shots are beautiful. I'm like, yeah, because that's Melina, motherfucker, Matsukis." You know what I'm saying? So it's like, that's why I don't have no. I, I just show up and go, oh, that's a beautiful shot. Okay, great. Let's make sure these words are right. Let's make sure the pacing is on point. Da, 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 da. And, um, and I always say about Melina, I feel like it's, it's as if we shared a room growing up. Mm -hmm. even though we didn't, but that's how it feels. We love each other like sisters, we bicker like sisters, we lean on each other like sisters, we cry to each other like sisters, Um, and I think that's why when you see our work, whether it be Thanksgiving or or Queen and Slim, you can feel that bond, you can feel that love, you can feel that coming together of, of two black girls, like putting their trauma and their joy and their love and their life into a piece of work. And I think that's why it hits people in their soul that way. And I want to continue to do that.
3: Well, the film is uh, Queen and Slim. It is uh, is bold, it is risk-taking, and it opens
2: up on well, Thanksgiving, some, some but a, what better holiday than that? Some important... <laughs> important. Donna Donna Laley said Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. She said Thanksgiving or Christmas. She said, what you think? <laughs> but, but yes, also, too, Thanksgiving, which is now a holiday that as people of color all over the world understand that that was not just a holiday, but more so as we're celebrating genocide. Mm-hmm. So what we like to do is sort of take that holiday back. And right. you can eat all you want to, but you must honor those that lost their lives in order for us to be in this country today. Absolutely.
3: Well, Lena and Melina, thank you for thank being you. here. Thank you. Congratulations.
0: That does it for this week's episode. Uh, we'll be back next week talking about so much more of all of this Oscar bus stuff, including the Gotham Awards, as we mentioned, and uh, everything else. In the meantime, you can find us at vanityfair.com, which will also include coverage of the new establishment summit, including Richard's panel with YouTubers. So please come check that out. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard.
1: Felicity Superfan.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and Joanna team no <laughs> i have never watched felicity and you guys are making me feel very left out
5: <laughs> i'm actually team ben i was i was team no when i was when i first watched
0: it now i'm team ben um this episode was edited and produced by brett pukes